Hi everyone, this is International Society of Hypertension Podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. So welcome back everyone to our uh, Mentoring and Training uh, Committee podcast. Today we'll talk to Dr. Erica Jones, who many of you may must recognize from the monthly ISH bulletin. Erica completed her PhD at the Reno unit at the Groot Schur Hospital and the University of Cape Town, South Africa. And now she's the director of the hypertension service at the Groot Schur Hospital. Erica is interested in uh, hypertension management where she has published extensively. She's a member of the executive, executive committee of the South African Hypertension Society. And at the ISH, she's a member of the Com communications committee and the lead of our monthly bulletin. Erica is also part of a research team that aims to train and develop clinician scientists, which is a very interesting topic to us today. With that, Erica, I would like to welcome you to our WeChat today. And I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me, Guter. So just to get things started, uh, Erica, can you tell us a little bit of your story and how did you get involved with like hypertension research and ISH? So, um, you know, it, it started off with a mistake in my fifth year where I, I put some assignment in my in my boot in the car and <laughs> I forgot about it and it was so frustrating it, it immensely upset me that I could forget something like that that when we came to answering the questions I really was horrified and have subsequently spent a lot of time trying to make up for that mistake and um while I was doing my community service, so in South Africa, we have a year of national service after we've completed our internship, where we um, allocated across the country and um, uh, just to, to do some clinical service in, in various different parts of the country. And during that time, I just arrived at Huerteskia Hospital in Cape Town just to see if they would be willing to have me as a registrar. And... I popped into Brian Rayner's office and I really have not looked back because hypertension has been his driving force, but his exposure to me um, and what he's done for me and um, for hypertension in South Africa has really inspired me. So it was kind of by mistake that I landed up in hypertension and by luck and by fortune, just being exposed to really wonderful people. And then as I've grown in hypertension and started to develop a career here, um, Prof. Rayner has given me many people or exposed me to very many people um, in, in the hypertension world and including the ISH. He encouraged me to attend an ISH meeting in I think 2015 um, and Ulta was quite, um, Ulta who was uh, in South Africa at the time, um, she was very involved with the NIC and he encouraged me to attend the meeting with her. So that's where it started. And then obviously 
it took a little bit of time for me to get going in it. I, I subsequently had kids and specialized, um, but eventually got going properly. And in the last couple of years, I've kind of grown my um, interest in the ISH and my activities within the ISH. And it's been an amazing experience to work with so many people, with so many brilliant minds and such great leaders. Yeah, and then and that was such a fortunate uh, mistake, right, Erica? Because it, 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 we opened a huge door for you, and that's amazing. It, it's good to hear. I love the the fact that you said like it started with a, a wee mistake that became like a, a success. I know, and and it wasn't even like I could make up for it to the to the prof who was um, teaching us at the time, because I mean it was a a follow-up teaching session and then it was done and I hadn't done it <laughs> so a very fortuitous mistake um, and I'm pretty glad I did it. Perfect and Erica as, as I mentioned uh, on your intro you sit in a very important committee in a very busy committee which is the communications uh, and you lead the ISH monthly uh, bulletin which it must be like a lot of, uh, it, I think it is a lot of work. So how sitting in committees like this helps you to advance your career? Like what's your take on that? So I think I'm very fortunate to be sitting on this committee. I think Dylan is a fantastic leader and he's, he's very generous with his um, kind of spirit and time. And, but also he just, he will allow you to kind of go your own way as long as it's within um, the rules. And I think this that's certainly a way that I like to, to go. Um, I do like to be left to do things my own way. Um, so, you know, I, I fit this into my time and, and around my schedule. And I think that being involved in the committee, in this particular committee, has been such a, um, an amazing experience for me because I've been exposed to um, the leadership in the ISH, uh, and I've also been exposed to a lot of um, different members outside of the immediate leadership. So obviously MTC, but also the Women in Hypertension Research, and um, the NIC, I mean, I've had to email them quite a lot and say, well, what would you like to add in? Have you got something for Kyoto now? I've been kind of in contact with people in Japan. And it's really given me a different perspective on um, being able to communicate and interact with people. And really has given me exposure to a vast um, diverse number of um, people across the world. And I'm very grateful for that exposure. Um, yes, committee work can be time consuming. I think one does need to balance the different committees that you're on and make sure that you're not, not doing too many because once you become too involved in, in too many things, then obviously you're not doing anything properly and we all have our daytime jobs as well. Uh, I think that in order to, to grow in academia, it's quite important to be involved in different arenas, um, and that includes committees. And uh, I think if, if we don't, then we're not going to develop our scientific um, platform. So 
I feel strongly about hypertension and developing this. In that case, I need to be involved in committees such as the Communications Committee or and or the ISH and my own committees in South Africa and within the university. So if you feel strongly, you've got to be involved. Um, and yes, it's going to take extra time. And it's and it's true. Like it's it must be like rewarding for you too, right? Because in the communications, you're able to voice other people's uh, point of views and advocate, uh, help them to advocate for hypertension, which is your your goal as well, right? And it's been amazing to to kind of propagate everyone else's voices, and and it's not really my voice. It's it's definitely other people's voices that are going in there. Um, yeah, no, it's amazing. And and you're such in good hands, Erica. Like I, I love the both things. Like I love everything we put together. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. No, Erica, like switching to the mentorship type of um, but the mentorship topic of our conversation today. If you need to define your mentorship experience in one word, which word would you use? So I've listened to the podcasts before and I'm amazed that people can come up with one word to describe a mentorship experience. So it took me a long time to think up what I could work. But actually for me, I think the word that I would use is understanding. Nice. Would you mind expanding a little bit? Like, uh... Yeah, so I've, um, since I started my PhD and um, which was before I specialized, I was um, Prof. Rainer, um, here in, in Cape Town was my PhD supervisor and he grew into my, into my mentor. And all along, uh, he has been very, so he, he never kind of kept a close eye on me. What have you done this week? What have you done today? He was always kind of, you go, you do things, um, but he was there. And when things went wrong or things went right, um, um, he, he was always very positive for me. Um, as a registrar and as a senior registrar in nephrology, I fell pregnant and had my first child and then I had a second child, both under his uh, mentorship and in his leadership within the division. And both occasions, he received the news with, with such joy and enthusiasm, even though this was going to impact the service delivery that he um, ran. And just that kind of understanding that there is a world out there that people are going to grow up, children are going to arrive. Um, and when children arrive, there are complications and moms are going to have to leave work early or arrive late or arrive in, in a mess. <laughs> um, it's, it, he was always understanding. And he really encourages women to be in the workplace and um, and and kind of allows for flexible times. And his mentorship towards me has kind of taught me about mentorship. And then I've seen the way he's mentored or kind of given advice to those around me. And in our division in nephrology and hypertension at Twitterscare, we, as women, have always felt kind of part of the service. And I think that this is part of, being able to understand that actually people that provide a service are people and 
they're going to have other parts of their lives. So you need to understand that and you need to understand that at times work is going to come second. But at the same time, finding places um, or understanding how people would fly and grow and creating those opportunities. And that for me has what has been what Prof. Rainer has done for me and what I'm trying to build as my mentorship kind of platform that uh, where I work so that I can do that for those coming with me. So Erica, I guess like your answer for my next question is yes, but you, so you think in mentorship is important? I think it is a vital aspect of all academic careers, probably in many other aspects of uh, um, 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 kind of non-academic careers as well, but I don't have much experience there. And I think that in academia, we actually cannot do go places without our mentors. I, you know, kind of expanding on that, I've always I started off feeling that the only way to get anywhere in life was actually just to sit down, work hard, and make sure that you do it well yourself. And it's kind of later on in my career that I've realized how important the mentors are to expose you to different people, different opportunities, different societies. So if you don't have a mentor, find someone that can provide you with a little bit of advice. Just start off um, and build it. It doesn't have to start off big. It can be small to start off with but it can take you big places. And, and that's where mentorship can be very valuable. And, is, and I like the fact that you said like start small because uh, when I talk to uh, younger researchers now, uh, and I can't believe I'm saying younger, <laughs> um, they come to me and they're like, oh, but I don't have a whole plan. I don't have many questions. And I was like, but you don't, like exactly what you said. You just need to have one question. You like we start one small step forward, and then that relationship will take from there. And it's us. Yeah. And, Absolutely. And Erica, like, when in your career did you realize that you needed a mentor? Like, I know that you mentioned that your PhD supervisor became your mentor, and I think for many people there is that transition. But not for other people, right? So for other people, their PhD supervisor just stays as a supervisor and doesn't become a mentor. But in your uh, story, did you realize, oh, I need a mentor now? Or things just uh, progress naturally? So after I'd completed my PhD, I then specialized in internal medicine and then came back into the renal service and specialized in nephrology and hypertension. And it was at that point that Brian became my mentor. But I only really realized that he'd become my mentor kind of two, three years later. Um, so it was really very much a progressive process. Um, and I'm very fortunate that way. Uh, I, you know, even two, three years later, when I realized that he had become my mentor, I didn't realize I needed one. It was kind of two years later that I've started like, actually, I really do need this. I need this for my thinking. I need this for my um, career advancement. And I, and I need this for um, 
relationships within the greater um, academic academic world. And now that you experienced all that given, let's say like all the mentorship, I, I'm assuming that you became a mentor yourself to younger colleagues or to colleagues that now uh, struggle or come to you for advice. So now looking at yourself as a mentor, how would you describe your mentoring style? So I would always have described my mentors, mentoring style as similar to Prof Rainer because that's where I learned it from, as kind of allowing people to go their own way. And very recently, within, the, within this year really, I have realized that kind of it, it, it does require more. Um, well, I need to be more hands-on and more kind of um, guiding. Um, and more involved rather than allowing people to just fly. Uh, while I really enjoy wanting to go off on my own and do my own thing and then asking for help when I need it, I've realized that people find that maybe a little bit challenging and particularly in the younger world and particularly people who maybe not have been, uh, might, not, might not have been exposed to academia for a longer period of time. And they might, they seem to feel the need to have a more regular set meetings and more regular guidance. Um, so I'm trying to kind of switch a little to be more regular and more guiding when I'm mentoring my um, junior colleagues. Yeah, no, and adaptation, like being able to adapt is key, right? Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that as a, as a mentor, we're constantly growing and we need to be aware and, and receive feedback so that we can develop our own style as well as a style that is suitable to the individual as uh, the different individuals that we um, mentor. And now looking at uh, the different mentees, uh, what traits do you think would be good for mentees to have in order to have a successful relationship? So I think that mentees need to be able to um, receive or be receptive when it comes to feedback and particularly what might be, uh, might be perceived as negative feedback. You know, we, we're all here to grow and we all need to be able to be criticized so that we can um, take that criticism positively and grow into something else. So I think that for me is, is kind of the most, be receptive as a mentee, um, take on different ideas and allow for open-mindedness. And when a mentee or anyone is looking for a change or is moving from a PhD to a postdoc and so on, and they need to choose a training environment, so what's your advice in identifying that's the environment that I will be able to join and grow as I would like to? You know, I think that the most important qualities that you're gonna be looking for are firstly kindness, and secondly, people that work well as teams. Everyone's slightly different, I mean, our team, that uh, we have four consultants that we're working with and we're all very different personalities. Uh, but as a whole, we provide 
a different kind of input into our, our juniors and our, our various team members. But as a whole, we work really well together. And that's been the most amazing experience is how we grow together, but then provide the individuals that we see um, with individual experiences and um, abilities to grow. So if someone looks at our team and they say, right, you guys work well as a team, then, well, it, well, if you look at any team and you're saying, you look, you guys are working well as a team, the chances are that those people will be receptive to including someone else in their team. So that would be the other thing is look for inclusive teams. And that way, they are more likely to allow people to grow. But for me, I think the most important thing is look for kindness, because kindness is going to be the baseline for building and growing and developing people. And Erica, how do you think that people can um, assess that? Let's say if you're going through a process of an interview process and you visit the place and so on, how, what would you tell people like how, how to, to assess that? Um, if you're a junior wanting to join into a team, you need to speak to the other juniors that have gone through that team. Um, and you need to probably look through kind of maybe publications um, or uh, that, that have been involved in the team, because obviously, if you're wanting to look at academia, you want to look at publications, but also involvement. I mean, if you involvement within other aspects like um, social socially responsiveness, involvement in something like the May Measurement Month or um, teaching programs or outreach programs, look for those things because that's going to tell you what a team is, is about. Um, I mean, not all of that is going to be vital for the individual's um, uh, kind of uh, research career. Um, for me, I'm talking about clinical research because that's, that's where I uh, where I work um, but yeah I think that if you're looking into joining a team speak to the junior people that have been through that team during an interview right Erica so you may um, be interviewing to a lab that you are a huge fan of the researcher and you never spoke to that researcher before or um, you want to approach a researcher in a conference to try to get a collaboration going or ask a question, so on, but you are extremely intimidated by that person. So what would you do in that situation to overcome that feeling and get what you need or what you want? Okay, well, this one's always a challenging one because I quite frankly like to be the hermit crab with the shell of my head and <laughs> hide. <laughs> um, yeah, I find it very challenging to uh, approach what I call big people. Um, and there are lots of big people out there. Um, but there are a couple of things to remember when you want to grow a career. Firstly, you can't do it on your own. Um, it is always a teamwork. I mean, this phrase by John Donne always comes to my head. No man is an island entire of itself. And... It, it's just so true in academia. And if we want to promote a message, manage blood pressure, control blood pressure, prevent blood pressure, 
we need to do it as a team, as, as a group. And if you, and we are all going to be intimidated. If you're intimidated, you've got something to give. So um, don't hold back and approach the people that might help you give that little bit of give. Um, I mean, Prof. Rainer has said to me a number of times when I was doing my PhD and when I, I, I was getting myself into a knot over presenting at a Congress or something like that, he would say, you know your topic more than anyone else does. You know what you've done. So don't worry, you can present on it. And you've got to remember that. It's like, this is your work and you've got, and it can go places. So you, you do have to kind of bite the bullet and go and speak to the big people. Yeah, and, and people, you should listen to Erica because Erica has to write all these big people to get things for the bulletin and she needs to follow a hard deadline and make sure that they deliver what she wants. So it's like, she is the person for you guys to listen to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Erica, now switching to diversity and inclusion, part of uh, our talk here. So what do you think is the biggest uh, barrier around diversity and inclusion? And how do you think it can change that in hypertension research? Um, you know, I think that one of the problems when it comes to diversity and, and precluding diversity is preconceived ideas. And I think we need to just stop and kind of rethink on ourselves and say, everyone has something to give. Everyone. And particularly people with a diverse perspective, because we might have the same experience and we might have the same ideas, but if you get someone from a different environment, they're going to have different ideas and they're going to have a different way of approaching a challenge. And that's what we have to do when we're thinking about um, how we kind of improve diversity or improve um, involvement of other people, other groups and, and society, societies. It can be um, population groups. It can be anything. We just have to remind ourselves constantly that there are so many means to an end and we should all kind of be included in getting to that end. So I think that would be um, my kind of the, the barrier that I would think is the highest one is, is preconceived ideas and let's let's remove them and just listen to our colleagues. And Eric, if you don't mind if I go off topic here a little bit, because um, I'm I'm interested to know your opinion as a, as a clinician scientist about um, diversity in research. Like in, let's say, there's a lot of like clinical trials or a lot, a lot of like clinical studies that help to shape treatments of many hypertension patients. And most of those uh, uh, studies were done only in males or didn't properly add females or women to, uh, to their cohorts. And now there's this uh, huge call for people studying sex differences and gender differences, even though even more, uh, to understand and to kind of like uh, fill in the gap 
uh, and then maybe see if the management of hypertension has to be different between uh, sexes. So, so what do you think about that? I think that we need to start making sure we can't do we can't undo what's done in the past. So we're going to have to start making sure that these are corrected. And when we include people in studies, we need to make sure that there is a diverse representation of race, sex, um, uh, you know, all, all the things that that um, kind of uh, um, environment. I mean, whether it's rural or um, uh, urbanized population groups, whether it's uh, people with other disabilities, we need to make sure that they are included in, in, in analyses um, so that we have diverse uh, data so that we can improve um, the body of evidence to what we actually are doing. I mean, we see it all the time. If you look at a clinical trial, the inclusion criteria are X, Y, and Z. And if you're XX, sorry. And, you know, this is, becomes a problem because then is, is this actually evidence that is relatable to the real world? So now we have all these real world um, publications, which are fabulous, but then people complain and say, well, it's not randomized and controlled. So now we're sitting in this kind of back and forth situation where we don't actually know what we're doing. Um, so going forward, we just have to go, right, we will include people from every part of the world. I mean, clinical trials that are based in, in Europe and in the US are not representative of international data. And then we can't say, well, you can use this new medication in Africa. We have to say, right, this trial will be done in Africa and we will make sure that we include a suitable number of patients. And it's not in African-American patients that are living in the US and have been for the past 10 generations. It's talking about, um, is, th is this data relevant or are these data relevant to Africa? Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much, Erica. Now, uh, you mentioned that uh, you, you have two kids and well, that was during your career development and you had a very understanding mentor. So now thinking about women in hypertension as yourself, uh, do you have an advice for them in terms of continuing hypertension and yeah. uh, continue strong with their career ambitions and all of that? So I think for the women who are trying to join academia or, or develop their careers in academia, uh, there are two bits of advice. Firstly, don't put off life for, for your career uh, because it's not going to be easier later. And, um, and, and there are very, very many happy things that come out of having your own personal lives. The other thing is, you know, um, going back to the kindness, make sure you surround yourself with people who are kind, understanding and allow for flexibility in careers because that is what we need. And now this is not just actually for women who are joining the workforce. Fathers, it is very important that fathers are allowed to perform in, in, at home because one of the things that I think is, is a challenge to 
women in the workforce is that the expectation is still that they're going to be the primary caregiver at home and we can't do it all. And sometimes the dad wants to be the primary caregiver. And we as society need to encourage that. We need to allow it. And we need that to be a fulfilling space for men and women. And sometimes is it the women who are just unwilling to give up on that um, senior role in the home? So I think we need to ask ourselves, are we, um, holding ourselves back by not allowing our partners to be the primary caregiver in the home. I think that would be my the one piece of advice. And then the other piece of advice that I feel is quite important for women who are more senior and who are being mentors is also mentor young men so that they can experience what women can give because then it becomes more acceptable that women are part of the senior workforce. So I think it becomes a whole kind of interactive solution. Don't exclude people just because we need to grow women in the workforce. We need to grow men to grow to allow them to also grow women in the workforce. So quite complicated, but love it. Like I totally agree with you, and and thank you so much for your, your honesty, um, Erica. Now talking about COVID nineteen, uh, you know that the pandemic came and stayed <laughs> a long while, longer than what we wanted and expected. And that affected a lot of people, uh, affected like studies, like PIs, ECRs, PhD students, labs were closed. Uh, clinical studies had to be stopped. Um, everything changed, let's say. Um, so what do you think that we can do? Or if there is any things that you've seen that people has done to and in work to support uh, junior researchers or researchers in general during the pandemic. So what's your take on that? So one of the things that I've certainly noticed and many of us have noticed is uh, from the pandemic has been the interplay between infectious diseases and non-communicable diseases. And traditionally we've separated them out and you're doing NCD, we're doing ID, um, particularly in South Africa, where it's actually quite easy to do lots of ID because of our um, disease profile. And, you know, there's been the separation. Now, there's an interplay. We understand that actually they feed each other. And if you have an infectious disease, uh, if you have COVID and you have diabetes, you're at higher risk of dying from COVID. So um, there's an interplay between the two diseases. And I think that that's one of the things that has actually come out quite nicely um, in the literature, certainly as a nephrologist, is the kind of higher risk of underlying non-communicable non diseases, increasing your risk of developing severe COVID, landing up in ICU and landing up dying from COVID. And I think that many people have used this as an opportunity to develop um, quite quickly protocols to uh, look at the interplay. And I think when you have something like as massive as the COVID pandemic, um, kind of being flexible and taking opportunities is what it's been about. Now, the problem has been funding. So funding just dried up very suddenly um, across the board. But when you're in clinical medicine, 
the clinical services still go on. So turn around and go, well, what can I do within the clinical service? And I think that there have been some amazing um, researchers who've actually taken that on and, and looked at the different um, uh, interplays between um, infectious diseases and um, uh, uh, non-communicable diseases. So yeah, taking opportunities when they come. And then obviously, as a mentor, constantly looking for different funding opportunities or different or different alternative opportunities for your mentees. Perfect. So, Erica, so this is we reached the end of our uh, chat today, and it, and it's so sad because I I was enjoying I I would stay here for hours <laughs> talking to you like you were so giving and uh, and give us gave us a lot of things to to thought about. So thank you so much, Erica, for uh, for being here with us and giving us uh, your precious time. Well, thank you, Guda, for having me. It was a uh, great fun. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.